Let us draw near. Biblical worship and the warming of the soul. This is part 13. And we've been in the middle of that extended series, 13 weeks. In the last few weeks, the topic has been New Testament worship and the 21st century church. Now, if you remember, we, we, we started unpacking principles for determining which expressions of scriptural worship are to be taken as permanently binding for the church today. You got this Bible, Old New Testament. And all sorts of things happen as people worship God. There's all sorts of instruction about how we used to be worshipped. How are we to know what fits for worship in Cedarview Community Church, December 16th, 2018? I mean, we don't want to just be measured by the ruler of style or fashion. And certainly we all have our own tastes. Trust me, if there's one thing I know for sure, every Sunday people come up to me about things they love and things they hate. We all have our own tastes. So there's just no way to do it in a way that everybody thinks is great. I don't even think that's supposed to be the goal. Our tastes have been shaped by a lot of things from upbringing, temperament, past teaching in various churches, multi-stripe denominational backgrounds, and probably none of it's bad. But also, none of it is absolutely reliable for measuring what God requires. What is he interested in when we come here this morning to worship? Go right back in this series. Isaiah saw the throne high and lifted up, and thrones imply kings. And kings, not their subjects, make the rules for worship. Then we studied Uzzah. Remember Uzzah? Uzzah's the one that reached out his hand. The Ark of the Covenant is on the cart. It hits some kind of a pothole in the road, and the Ark is about to fall off the cart. And Uzzah, wanting to defend God's glory, he doesn't want the cart falling down in the mud, and he reaches out his hand to steady it. And what happens to him? Well, he doesn't just die. God strikes him dead. Yeah. What's that all about? He's struck dead by God for disobeying worship instructions that revolved around the ark and how it was to be moved. And that's when we looked at that passage in Deuteronomy where where God, long before they have their first king, God gives his instructions and he says, make sure the king every year writes down the law, copies it out, longhand, writes it out, so there won't be any misunderstanding on how I'm to be approached. So this wasn't some capricious, mad act of God. They had every opportunity for knowing. And so we learn worship isn't regulated by human taste and worship isn't regulated by human sincerity. God, it seems, will go to great lengths to keep our thinking on track regarding on how he is to be approached in worship. Then last week we started narrowing our search 
narrowing our search for a theology of worship practice that we can apply to our church today. We nailed down the foundational principle, if you remember last week, how the Old Testament must always be interpreted in the light of the New. It's not that the New Testament is more inspired. It's not that it's more God's Word. It's not that you have a wrathful God in the Old Testament and a loving one in the New. A lot of people get that all mixed up in their heads. The New Testament isn't more holy. It's just a more complete picture We all actually interpret the Old Testament in the light of the New. I just gave some examples last Sunday. We all, we all uh, treasure the fact that in the New Covenant, God gives this prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 31, and he says, the days are coming when my spirit will come. And I will take those commandments that you just see externally on tablets of stone, and I'm going to write them on your hearts. I'll start to change your desires. And, and godliness will start to function from the inside out by the power of the Spirit. That's that day, that covenant is coming. And we, of course, apply that to the church. We apply it to our hearts. But if you go to Jeremiah 31, read the whole chapter, and you'll find that all of those words that I just talked about, they're all given to Israel. There's no mention of anybody but Israel, not the nations. It's a covenant that God says he's going to make with Israel. Yet we all apply it to us. Why do we do that? Well, we do that because the writer of Hebrews says you have authority for doing that. We do it because Jesus comes and says, this is the covenant that I'm establishing with you. So what we do is we take that Old Testament passage and we know it's for us. How do we know? You don't know it from the old. You know it because you have the New Testament and it shines light on that. So we took some time unfolding that principle. Always interpret the Old Testament in the fuller light of the New. And then, I'm almost done with this little review. Then we began looking at this key principle in the second point of last week's teaching. Everybody told me how long it was. And, it, and you're right. Here it is. This is the principle we dealt with. Major on worship expressions that are seen to be permanently binding. In one of two ways. Either by being carried over from the old covenant to the new. So they continue right through. Or they're introduced in the New Testament, and you can tell from the context that they're presented as being ongoing and permanent in the life of the church. And so last week what we did is we looked at just the last part of that principle. Principles of worship that are introduced in the New Testament. Introduced in the New Testament, newly introduced, but they're presented as being permanent additions to the patterns of worship. And you can view all those things online. Okay, enough. Today what I want to do is I want to look at the first part of that major principle. Major on worship expressions that are seen to be permanently binding. And here's the part we're looking at. By being carried over, so not now introduced newly in the New Testament, but 
carried over from the Old Testament into the New. Did I make that clear? You got what I'm saying? So what we're looking at today, we're going to look for worship expressions that are in the Old Testament, but we don't write them off like we do butchering lambs or goats. Because these patterns of worship are seen to be continued through the New Testament. I'm going to look at a few. Point number one. The lifting of hands unto the Lord. Psalm 63, verse 4. David, of course, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, in your name I will lift up my hands. Anyone with a good concordance, you don't have to take my word for it. In fact, you shouldn't. Anyone with a good concordance could find scores, that's not an exaggeration, scores of references to the lifting of hands to the Lord in the Old Testament. Just, just the sheer bulk of reference to it is, is really pretty amazing. That's not why we practice lifting hands to the Lord in worship. The New Testament, we find something else of even greater importance for the worship of the church. Look at these words. They're from Paul in 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 8. Got this on two slides. I, I, I'm giving the full context for the reference to lifting hands because I want to talk about the whole context in just a few minutes. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 8. First of all then, so when you're praying, Paul says, start here. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people. And then he says, for kings. All who are in high positions. Isn't it interesting that you read that, you read Romans 13 and other passages of scriptures, and in all likelihood, the rulers that Paul says God sets in authority over us, the ones we're supposed to pray for, he would be thinking of Nero, who's, who's burning Christians at the stake. That's striking. Pray for them that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires... How many people does God want saved? It is, it is in the book. I was in a church... Downtown Toronto, won't tell you what church. The pastor read it, and he paused right there, and he says, of course, that means all the elect. I went, what? Desires all people to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth, continue. For there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man. The baby never abandoned his humanity, even in the ascension. The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. It's good when pastors say that. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire that in how many places? In every place, men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger. Or, or quarreling. 
it's an interesting passage of Scripture. Paul, and of course what we believe, through Paul the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, takes this very common Old Testament practice of lifting up hands to the Lord, the very same practice David mentions so repeatedly, the same practice that Moses engaged in, Solomon engaged in, godly king after godly king. And he urges the New Testament church, encourages the New Testament church, make sure this practice gets perpetuated in prayer and worship. Well, Pastor Don, you're one of those, you're one of those wingy Pentecostals. And I think that's just sort of a, a cultural expression that Paul was giving to the church. I don't really think it applies for today. It's not necessary. And that's why I took the time to set Paul's words, his words about lifting hands in prayer and worship, and I read them in their surrounding context. Because if you want to say, well, that's just a, that's just a cultural thing, it's, it's not something that's necessary for the church today. What are you going to do with the rest of the instructions in the same passage? Because that's just what hermeneutics, good hermeneutics, has to do. Is modesty still a Christian virtue for the church today? Because Paul talks about it a lot in this same passage. Or is that a cultural thing? Or what about praying for our leaders? Maybe that's just cultural. We don't need to do that anymore. What about when Paul says that it's God's will that all people everywhere should be saved? Maybe, maybe that's changed. Maybe that doesn't apply to our culture. You see, it's, it's really tricky to go through a passage like that and say, that's good, that's good, that's for today, that's for today, that's for today, that one, mm, not sure. That's very sketchy Bible study. So, clearly, the Apostle Paul wanted people everywhere, he says, to lift up holy hands in their corporate times of prayer and worship without quarreling or anger because, because we get angry, we shake our fist at people, we sign petitions against people. Just take those hands without wrath or death, lift them to the Lord in prayer. I'm going to spend a whole message in this series, not this morning, just in a few weeks on that subject. Because I think, it's, I think it's one of the most ignored and misinterpreted worship practices. Let's look at another thing, though. Point number two. Bowing, kneeling before the Lord in worship and devotion. Psalm 95, verse 6. Come. Let us worship and, and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. It's just one of the many references of bowing to the Lord in worship in the Old Testament. There are oodles of them. But that's not why we believe in it. What Paul does is he picks up that instruction. Ephesians three fourteen through 16. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. 
Paul Shirley, you read about his, his abusive treatment, his imprisonment, his beatings, his whippings over and over again. He surely had to be arthritic by this time. Would you not think? And no Advil. I wonder just how that, I wonder how that worked for Paul, where, where he prays and he just, and he just, oh, oh boy. But he says, I just, I just feel, I just feel we have to kneel. Because, because he's our maker. And he's our Lord. And, and this isn't appropriate. Isn't there something beautiful in that? The way Paul talks about that, the instruction that he gives. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Kneeling before the Lord, it befits two things, if I read that right. Kneeling before the Lord is appropriate for intensity of desire in prayer and the second thing recognition of the greatness of God's glory intensity of desire recognition of glory for this reason he says I I bow there's something we need to come to terms with let me just talk about it for a minute because, because there's something in all of us that rebels against it. There's something we need to come to terms with in simple textual honesty and in proper humility. And it's this. God is eternally interested in expressions of worship from his people that involve their physical bodies. He just always has been. It only makes sense when we remember that God created us as material, physical beings. He didn't just make you as a spiritless mind. And this emphasis will continue in God's heart for our worship as as long as God lasts. As As his mind races toward this unseen future, eternity, Paul says more about kneeling before the Lord. Only this time he's writing of the continued physicality of our worship in the age to come. You never escape this. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him. It's Jesus. Bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, here it is, And that's not right now that he's talking about. In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So kneeling before the Lord, it so transcends not only the old covenant, but any culture, any period of time that Paul says the day is coming when the new creation is here. Everything is settled. Everything is finished. Everything is done. You know what? People will still be doing kneeling before the Lord. No, I can't say more about that. Three. Singing. 
Singing plays a vital part in scriptural worship in both the Old and the New Testaments. We've already looked at it. Remember the story of Jehoshaphat? Anybody remember it? Just wave at me. One, two. In front of the armies, all these enemies, three nations coming against Jehoshaphat. The Lord says, you don't have to fight this battle. He says, and I'm paraphrasing, get the singers, get the musicians. And they go out. They go out in front of the soldiers. And they're singing to the Lord. And as they sing to the Lord and praise his name, God confuses and routes the enemies. And they take all the plunder, the sheer power of song. But it appears far earlier than the story of Jehoshaphat and even the Psalms of David. You can go back to Exodus, Exodus chapter 15. And then Moses and the people sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The the Israelites went across the Red Sea on dry land. Pharaoh tries to follow with the horses and the riders, and the water swallows them up. And when they get to the other side, the first thing they do is they build an altar. You know what they do? They sing. They sing. That's Israel's response to the delivering power of the Lord on their behalf. They sang to the Lord. Song has always marked the thankful people of God. No one talked about it more than David. Psalm 9, 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. What do you do when you think about God's goodness? When your mind just plays the soundtrack over and over again of God's goodness. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will will sing praise to your name, O Most High. So there you have all these Old Testament references, but that's not why we sing. The scriptures so clearly reaffirm the abiding place of song in the worship of the New Testament church. I love, this, I love this account, Jesus, and he's facing the agony of the cross, and he's there with the people closest to him on earth. And as they were eating, he, he took bread, and after blessing, he broke it and gave thanks to them. Paul, he quotes this. He says, I got this from Jesus. Take, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks and gave it to them. And they drank all of it. And he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it in new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives. Let me ask you something. What we know of this ragtag bunch of fishermen who never went to choir practice, do you, seriously, do you think these were good singers? Do you think they were? I doubt it very much. I, cl- I, I hear a bunch of gruff, monotone, bellowing singers. 
they would never ask to do that would never be asked to sing a solo in any church anywhere. Why does Jesus do this? He wasn't following some order of service. Uh, pray, do communion. Oh, turn to hymn number 423. It wasn't that. He knew there was strength in song for what this small group of terrible singers was soon going to face. So they don't just pray together. They sing together. Some of the great moments of the early church continue to revolve around the power of song. Here's another story you know. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, Paul and Silas, threw them into prison ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and and singing hymns to God. Look at The prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So Jesus takes his disciples and he knows what's coming for all of them and what a terrible time it's going to be and he says let's sing together. Let's sing together. Paul and Silas were in prison. Is it coincidental? Right before, right before God's dramatic act of sovereign deliverance, what they're doing is they're singing together. And God works. I can't tell you the number of times it's hard on my ego when people come up to me and relate how God supernaturally touched their lives, not when I was preaching, but when they were singing to the Lord. The Apostle James, he he goes even farther. He starts to build a little theology around song. James 5.13. You all still with me? James 5.13. Is anyone among you suffering? So suffering. Pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? So cheerful. Sing. So what we learn, what we learn is that the early church learned to discern the different seasons of the Christian life and to respond appropriately. And just as surely, just as surely as when there was trial and difficulty, they would pray. When there was blessing and God's faithfulness, they would sing. And the singing was no more optional than was the praying. Then we learned, as the church, the early church, started thinking about the power of song, and as they started to think it through, they developed it in even more complete ways. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. 
let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. I take that, so there's the goal. We want the word of Christ dwelling in us, right? That we, want, we want the word of Christ dwelling in our hearts. But, apparently, that's, that's, that's more than just an intellectual process. In other words, you know how to read. You know how to put together nouns and verbs and adjectives and pronouns. You know how to interpret sentences so you can understand what the word says. That's not the same as the word dwelling in you richly. How, how do we make that happen? Well, there's, there's teaching. Admonishing. Admonishing is teaching, but it's teaching that comes and says, you're not doing this. <laughs> in all wisdom, singing. Okay, so singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. We want the word dwelling in us richly. That's what we want. Well, that involves teaching, correcting, admonishing, and it involves singing. Would you have put singing in there with hearing the word? I'd, I wouldn't have. So psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. So in keeping, in keeping with the desire of the apostolic leadership for the word to remain central, you have the singing of psalms. It appears first on the list because, especially then, Scripture was put to song, and that was used as a way of retaining it. You know how that works. When someone asks me to say the books of the Bible, I don't just go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. I go Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Anybody else do that? That's how it works. So you can play the word back. And secondly, the church continued after the pattern of Jesus himself. They remembered that. And singing hymns. Hymns quickly became longer, more doctrinally oriented songs. And they formed much of the traditional creedal background for the early church. Philippians 2, you read it, but it was usually sung. You notice the message of these songs, all of them, was frequently directed towards others in the body of Christ. You see that in Ephesians 5.19. Addressing one another. This isn't singing to God here. In Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Then here, to the Lord. People need encouragement. People need exhortation. I grew up with stuff that we aren't growing up with anymore. I grew up singing, take time to be holy. I grew up singing, trust and obey. I grew up singing, my faith has found a resting place. I grew up singing, blessed assurance. And these hymns, these hymns have been sung to one another in the church for generations. They've edified the church with message of faith. Just on a side note, this is just me, my opinion. Here's a little slice. You don't have to agree with me. I don't particularly like it when writers of current worship songs feel free to change the words of great hymns. Anybody else feel that way? 
I think we can all agree. We sing. Tom does such a good job. We sing many, many great, sound, newly written worship songs that bless the church. And, and I, think, I think it's much better than when I was a kid in terms of the worship choruses that we sing. It's way better now than it used to be. Writers are free to generate any lyrics they feel inspired to write. God bless them. Quite another thing, to my mind, to take what someone else has written, especially if the whole church around the world, if the whole church around the world has been blessed by a hymn for 300 years. Here's my take. It probably doesn't need fixing. Would you agree with that? It probably doesn't need fixing. And every once in a while I'm singing a hymn and I'm looking at the words and I go, wait a minute, that, when did that change? If it's blessed the church for 300 years, leave it alone. Just leave it alone. Finally, they sang spiritual songs. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. These would equate to many of the the worship courses that we sing in church today. Songs that, and they're very good at this, songs that heighten intimacy. They're, they're designed in a, in a close way to be sung to the Lord. They, they open up our hearts to his presence. And here's where I'm going with this. I think it's a huge, huge and very common mistake for churches to decide they're going to be traditional or they're going to be uh, contemporary or they're going to be this or they're going to be that. And so this church just does hymns and this church just does choruses. And I think that's a huge mistake because I think the teaching of this passage of Scripture is that the church needs all of those expressions of worship. It needs all of them. And it isn't a matter of style. Most churches just go to style. And you know why? Because they've never thought through what we're considering this morning. They never study it. Churches don't talk about it. We just do what we do. There are style elements, of course. I mean, there weren't any pianos or organs in the early church, let alone electric guitars and drums. But, but the basic pattern of these expressions goes deeper. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And churches will haggle and split and argue and fracture over little trends if they neglect the deeper theology of worship. Four. Both the Old and New Testaments lift up the value of spoken praise and worship. To the Lord. I tried to put a couple of these on one slide, and I think it worked. Of David. So this is a psalm of David. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out of the way, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mind. Oh, what's that? I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng. I will praise you. And we read, we read 
some of these other words from the Old Testament so well known. I'm almost done. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my mind will praise you. As long as I live in your name, I will... Oh, oh, there it is again. New Testament. Through him, then, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God. Now, lest you think he's talking about just sort of quietly meditating, you in your way and I in mine, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Take a moment and sum up these last couple teachings. I think their importance can't hardly be, can hardly be overestimated. We've looked at, at two principles for determining which Old Testament expressions of worship are carried over into the new and marked as permanent for the church today. And the first was practices carried over from the Old Testament and the new. That's what we looked at today. And second, practices that are initiated and presented as abiding in the instruction of the New Testament. Those two principles form the heart of how we worship and why in this church. What we do in church is governed by those two principles. You need to know that. It'll save people asking different kinds of questions. I'm not really interested in getting all worked up about passing fads and worship or manifestations that have no biblical grounding in the clear teaching of the New Testament. That would include, I'm not trying to step on anybody's toes, I just want to give examples. That would include anything from things like like wave offerings, laughing in the spirit, dancing before the Lord, and a host of other things, which I'm sure aren't wicked in any way, but aren't once mentioned in the practice, the worship of the early church. I think a lot about Paul's words, where he says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, "Do do not go beyond what is written. Look it up. Do not go beyond what is written, he says. People will always want something new, and they will always want to fight about something new. And I I don't have any fight in me on those things. This is what we do, and I want you to know why we do it. We all have enough spiritual pride to crave something a little extra, but I think if we can just rely on the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word and those two principles, and we can reject things not taught in the Word and not leave out anything that is taught in the Word, I have a feeling we'll be right where Jesus wants us to be. You know what? It's always safe there. You can always be sure of His blessing if it's something He commands and instructs. You're walking on a good path. Everyone said, 